The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders with interviews, music, and documentaries. You're listening to the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Learn more online at mediamakingchange.org. I'm Carly Meisberger. Today, we're talking with the executive director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center, an organization that is working to end mass incarceration in Oregon. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I am in the studio with the executive director for Oregon Justice Resource Center, Bob Bobinson. How are you doing? Good. Thanks uh, for having me. Absolutely. So, so... You co-founded Oregon Justice Resource Center um, almost 10 years ago, April 2011. Mm -hmm. What was the need you saw? And I know that that's like opening up a huge can of worms, but what was the need that you saw? Yeah, you know, a lot of it just grew out of my experiences in law school. So when I came to law school, I was an older student. I was in the part-time program um, at, at law school. And primarily my interest was working on civil liberties, civil rights, and criminal justice issues. And I began working with a capital defense attorney at that time and really got uh, heavily involved with the ACLU Oregon at that time. Um, you know, at that time at the law at the at at my law school, there wasn't actually year-round opportunities for students who were interested in working on these issues. So um, while we were there in our last years, a colleague in my, a, a, of mine, um, we began recruiting students to begin doing research work and support to attorneys working on these issues and really just kind of grew out of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we graduated, it was at a time where the economy wasn't great and there wasn't very many job opportunities. So we decided to incorporate a nonprofit and just build off the work we were doing in law school. And really... At that time, what we really identified is that there was no legal organization in Oregon that was solely dedicated to sort of confronting, frustrating, undermining mass incarceration. And so as we began to step into this space, over the past 10 years, what we've really been able to do is uh, deepen our work, expand the scope of our programming, um, because there's really nothing that we're competing with. And there's just there was such a gap um, at that time. I just want a um, quick clarification here. So you, you were you were at Lewis and Clark Law School. That's right. So here here in Portland, um, and and not to oversimplify what what uh, the mission or the purpose is, but but really challenging ex excessive prison sentences. I mean, I think it's broader than that. I think what we're really trying to do is um, frustrate mass incarceration, and that is prior to sentencing. I mean, that's police interactions. I think it's reorienting how we think about um, how we punish, who we criminalize, and then who we treat um, once those individuals are perhaps convicted of crimes or deemed to have created a social harm. And then how we treat them not only during incarceration, but when they come back into our community. So it, we're the only legal organization in Oregon, uh, and the only organization really in Oregon that's involved in all aspects of the criminal justice system from arrest through reentry. And... and Wow, I mean that's 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 a big mission, mm -hmm. and and you are fighting some pretty strong uh, cultural, legal, uh, 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 moral ideas and forces there. Yeah, uh, I mean we're we're basically at its root combating white supremacy and what the values and sort of philosophies of this country was founded on, in which. You know, throughout the history of this country, we've seen sort of different iterations of social control and mass incarceration is just the m most recent iteration. 
And so I think at this moment in this country, we are having a pretty profound and deep conversation about who is American, what does it mean to be American, white supremacy. Um, and this is all sort of the underneath of mass incarceration. Um, so it is it is a big mission, um, but I think uh, we're at a moment where there's a lot of potential to make some really great progress and to, again, reorient sort of the values. And with, with a mission that big, do you approach it uh, at the individual level, so individual cases, or are you approaching it more at the systemic level? And and because those, I would I would imagine those are two very different programming challenges and opportunities. Well, our organization actually takes both approaches, which is I think also makes um, our our organization unique. So we run five different projects, um, all providing legal services to individuals in and throughout the criminal justice system um, that wouldn't otherwise have access to um, legal services. From our client experiences, because we are involved from arrest through reentry in some aspect of in some way through our programming, we actually get a unique insight into what's happening to individuals as they're navigating the criminal justice system. It's from that insight and that knowledge that we're actually able to engage in better systemic reform. So we take that that ground level work, that direct client representation, but are always thinking about what does this mean? What patterns are we seeing? What issues are we seeing? And translating that into systemic reform. And that's I think where a lot of our strength and reputation has uh, been developed over the past um, a couple of years, because we've been able to go to the legislature or to the city or wherever, and to be able to say, this, these are the things that we're seeing and these need to be changed. And while they may not be huge sort of attention-grabbing type of issues, um, you know, like getting rid of cash bail, um, where, you know, that's getting a lot of a national attention, some of the stuff that we're proposing is pretty technical, but have impacts on thousands, if not, you know, tens of thousands of people that are going through the criminal justice system. Right. And on, on, on the state level, I mean, Oregon, like uh, uh, like California, like a number of states in the 90s, uh, there was a real uh, um, shift or, I mean, some horrible things happened that the repercussions are being felt currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three strikes and you're outlaw, the tough on crime, Oregon passed measures for mandatory minimum sentences, Oregon passed... 40-hour work week, which I don't think that exists anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but these were all all uh, sweeping laws that, that really changed um, how incarceration uh, was, was focused. And, and that would seem to be that's a lot to dismantle. It is. I mean, we're talking about decades of a philosophy and approach to, again, how we treat um, and deal with individuals that are deemed to have committed a social harm. Um, And the approach has been overly punitive, a one-size-fits-all that sort of neglects the uh, complexities of individual lives, um, the nuances of circumstances that put people onto a path into the criminal justice system. And unwinding that is um, it's complicated because at the end of the day, what we've done is uh, created a criminal justice system that actually is the endpoint for a lot of these complex socioeconomic issues that people are facing, whether it's poverty, mental health, um, you know, uh, being survivors of sexual assault or trauma, um, other like undereducated, low education resources, um, other public health issues, addiction. Um, so what ends up happening is these social problems are largely being neglected out in the community and the criminal justice system because no one is really dealing with them. Uh, people are pushed into that. So, And then we have developed this philosophy of, well, we're going to create the heaviest, most punitive sanctions against these individuals. 
Um, and we're going to do it in a one size fits all. So, you know, a prison sentence by and large is not a remedy to any of this. All it does is exacerbate these situations. So I think, yes, you're absolutely correct. Like it's, it's huge. It's a huge undertaking. I mean, it's decades of, um, a value, decades of a value system that's been largely driven by the politics of fear and anger that we're trying to unwind. And then underneath that, we're talking about the racism that, uh, you know, that has existed in this country since the inception. So, Yes, it's huge. And, and and the other part of the equation that you haven't mentioned yet is also the the economics of this. Uh, the I mean the 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 prison populations, and you might have the statistics. I don't. I mean, has has doubled. I mean, has the over the last twenty five years um, since the nineties, the prison populations have have multiplied, uh, and people are are making good money mm-hmm. on this. You know, and I think when you have uh, both some cultural trends as well as people making livings and money off of it. Those are really two hard forces to work against. Uh, and that's absolutely correct. I mean, behind all of it, um, I mean, Oregon is uh, one of the few states that doesn't allow or, it, you know, one of the states that does not allow like private prisons. So all the prisons, at least in Oregon, are uh, public institutions. But there's a whole private industry behind it, you know, whether it's making the uniforms or tasers mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, the food, the cl- you know, what, whatever it may be. Um, but there are a lot of people that make a lot of money off of incarcerating individuals and keeping people incarcerated. So, um, yeah, I think there's definitely perverse incentives. I mean, one of the ones that I think people don't think about, um, but that is hugely uh, motivating sort of our prison population is... You know, if you're convicted of a felony, a year, a sentence that carries a year or more, um, you go up into state custody. If it's less than that, you stay in county in jail. So, you know, at the county level, there's this weird, perverse economic incentive to actually overcharge and try to charge felonies and get felony convictions because then you're pushing them up and putting them on the state dime and not on the county dime. So there's actually there's actually less incentive to keep people in county close to where they live, um, even if it's those crimes that are just right on the edge, because at the end of the day, the economic burden is going to be on the state, not on the county. So it, there's all these, I think, perverse incentives that exist. I think the ones that you're talking about with private corporations um, surrounding the system and propping it up. But I think even within the state, there's like these weird hydraulics that don't make any sense. I mean, you got to get overwhelmed. Like you're trying. I, I, I hate to. I, I mean, I'm going to keep hammering on that point. You are uh, approaching this. I mean, and it is. It's a huge problem. But you're approaching. You're trying to tackle the entire machine. It seems like, and that's a lot. I mean, it is a lot. Uh, we have a great staff, so that that helps. Um, we have great support. I think um, what you're finding, especially over the past five years. Um, uh, a real robust conversation around uh, criminal justice reform, racial justice, mass incarceration. So there's a lot of energy right now, and I think there's a lot of positive developments. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, it becomes ultimately a culture change that we have to create in this country about how we think about people who commit crimes or uh, are alleged to have commit crimes um, and how we treat them. Once we make that pivot, then we're asking a whole different set of questions and we're arriving at a whole different set of solutions. For example, if we move away from public safety, like is are we is this good for public safety? With that framework, what we're really asking is what's safe, what's unsafe. You know, what do we fear? What do, what should we not fear? But if we began to ask questions around how do we make our communities healthier, 
then we began to ask a whole separate set of questions because then we're asking like, does it actually make sense to separate this mother from her child through incarceration? Or do we support this mother through an addiction and keep that keep her parenting as well? And that's actually better, healthier for them. It's healthier for the community. And I think that's what we're what we're getting to. But I think once we hit that, which is a huge fight, I mean, it's not easy, but I think what you're going to see is exponential sort of uh, progress in the other direction. And you said you, you said that that you're having robust conversations. And who are you engaging in those conversations? And who is it most important to engage in those conversations? I mean, is this the 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 general public, or is this the you know the state level decision makers? Who needs to be in uh, that discussion? Everyone, anyone. I mean, because it is ultimately uh, about how we as a community think about this issue. Ultimately, gets reflected in policies, and I think. You know, some of the things that we're doing through one of our programs, like the Women's Justice Project, where we provide um, civil legal services to women at Coffee Creek, um, this past session we were able to get a bill to expand that work. And um, we've been doing it for five years. Based on that proof of concept, the legislature was a, gave us funding to actually increase it to um, hire two more attorneys and basically add like a legal aid office inside the prison, first of its kind in the country. But what we're doing around that is engaging with stakeholders that have never been part of this conversation. So we... Um, began conversations with a statewide faith network to come in and provide volunteer support to supporting parents that are incarcerated and helping them when they come back into the community. They just launched a huge effort um, about a couple weeks ago. We're uh, inviting other private companies that have never been involved in this to do both uh, pre-release employment training and second chance employment. So right now, you know, women get training and then there's second chance employers out there, but there's not actually an employer that's coming in and training and then guaranteeing employment with that company and bringing other companies along. We're trying to engage with OHSU to have them come in and help with medical navigation. We, we try to do as much public education events as we can to bring the public along. Um, we're engaged with stakeholders at the city, county, and state level. So, you know, at the end of the day, it is about engaging all Oregonians and getting them to understand, again, how do we make our communities healthier? And that involves like a different conversation, but we need non-traditional partners or people that haven't been engaged in this conversation to come on board and realize this is about their neighbors. This is about people that we all know. Bob and Singh is the executive director for Oregon Justice Resource Center. Now you brought in some music. You want to um, pick out one of the songs that you, you brought in? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the first cassette tapes, the first cassette tape I ever bought was a Bob Marley tape. Um, uh, talking blues. And ever since then, I've been just hooked. I was, I think, in the sixth, fifth or sixth grade. And I don't think I listened to anything but Marley and then like some hip hop um, through through college. But the first song is Small Axe by Bob Marley. Um, it's, uh, it's the idea that um, all of us have the ability to be able to tackle big problems if we look at the tools in front of us. Thank you. 
Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I am joined with the Executive Director for Oregon Justice Resource Center, Bobinson. Uh, let's let's talk a bit about, you guys have, have so much that you're doing. Are there places that are, quote-unquote, doing it right, that are, are providing either, uh, providing the services so that people, uh, individuals aren't ending up incarceration, or that are uh, jails or prisons are providing uh, the correct services. And you, you mentioned one of the programs that um, that the Oregon Justice Resource Center has helped to facilitate and collaborate with at, at Coffee Creek, the, the women's uh, prison, uh, in terms of job training and job connection. Are there other programs that you can point to either here in Oregon or in other states? Yeah, I mean, I think across the country what you're seeing is um... – 
you know, different state actors or uh, stakeholders starting to make different decisions. So what we've seen in the past couple of years, in large part to work, uh, great work by a network of advocates nationally, is uh, different types of district attorneys taking positions. Like, so there's been the progressive DA movement. And, you know, in some of these jurisdictions, like in Philadelphia, now in San Francisco, we see district attorneys really beginning to use their power and discretion to think about how they prosecute differently. So trying to create more alternatives, not prosecuting certain types of cases, um, not seeking certain types of punishments like the death penalty. So I think you're starting to see that more and more across the country. I think both in jails and prisons, I, I think we have a long way to go. Um, you know, right now, as we speak, there is a horrific uh, scandal happening in Mississippi, in the Mississippi prisons, where people uh, are dying. And, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated mess down there. But I think you see it's not abnormal, I think, in this country, because um, largely prisons have been sort of very private, very black box, um, like, you know, remove outside, out of mind kind of mentality. So it's sort of hard to really have a full appreciation for the conditions in a lot of prisons. Um, that said, I think here in Oregon, Colette Peters, the uh, director of the Department of Corrections, is really trying to implement a new value system that's based off the Norway's uh, incarceration model. So it's this idea of understanding that incarceration, the sentence itself, is the punishment, but the prison itself shouldn't be punishment. There should be access to programming, basically making the prison look more like the community than something that's separate because recognizing 95% of people are going to be coming back into the community, how do we best set them up for success? That's going to take some time. I mean, it's, again, reversing decades of culture. Um, so uh, I think there are examples like that. Um, you know, there are law enforcement practices that are changing in some jurisdictions, um, but it's tough. I think... Because it's not a unified system, we're talking about, you know, uh, at least half a dozen different actors within the like that we uh, identify as the criminal justice system. So law enforcement that's usually run by the municipality, prosecution that's run by the county, jails run by the county, the prisons run by the state. You know, reentry services coming back to the county when the people get uh, released under post prison supervision. So trying to coordinate all these systems to actually even talk to each other and to have some sort of holistic vision that syncs up, that's where we're sort of still at. Um, you just said a lot of things. I, I want to underscore the, the words that you said, that the, the, using the model of the Norwegian system of the um, the prisons shouldn't... Can you say that again about the punishment, that the, that, that, that the prisons shouldn't be the punishment? I know that's not what was just said, but... Yeah, I mean, it's this the this it's it's this idea that your sentence being removed from society and being incapacitated is your punishment. But going to prison in and of itself, the conditions you live in, the access to opportunities or other things that you have, that should not be your punishment. You should not be denied sort of rights and privileges that exist in the community. People that are currently incarcerated can't vote. They don't have access to public uh, higher education. Uh, limited access is at least um, to higher education and vocational training. Um, limited access to the courts, limited access to the community um, as far as like information. And when you think about like that, most of these individuals are going to be coming back. And if they're there for a decade and they have no idea how to use a computer, what the Internet is, how to use a smartphone, have never participated civically. So they don't understand uh, the responsibility about civic engagement. Um, we're putting someone back into our community that's just set up to fail. Um, and I also want to peel out one other, very maybe not a small part, but you said um, part of the work to do is to to talk about what crimes maybe not to prosecute. 
Where does weed fall into all of this? I mean, has that been a change uh, in terms of removing uh, uh, weed as, as, as a, I mean, possession selling as a crime? Yeah, I mean, Oregon has made some strides that way. I mean, obviously, Oregon has legalized uh, marijuana. Um, small amounts of possession of other uh, drugs have been decriminalized or defelonized. And I think there's going to be a push this upcoming year to decriminalize all drugs um, up to a certain point. I mean, trafficking and those things are you know kind of carved out. But I, I think what you're seeing across this country is a movement towards this idea that this is a public health issue. It doesn't belong in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, that there are better solutions out in the community or there should be if they're not. Um, and you're seeing DAs, I think, especially the more progressive ones, thinking about if we have a limited amount of resources, let's focus then more on the serious crimes. Um, I just want to wrap up our discussion here because you, you, you're doing so much good work. Your organization is is really trying to tackle massive, uh, massive issues. Where does this come from? I mean, so you're, you're I'm going to do some speculation mm-hmm. here. You're from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am. That has to play into some of the DNA, your professional DNA. I mean, obviously, Dr. King, John Lewis, even Jimmy Carter with the Carter Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be a lot of good civic work that comes that that happens in Atlanta and that comes out of Atlanta. Does that play into to you know what what you're doing and. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up in Atlanta, I was um, a child of immigrants. I grew up in the Sikh faith. So my dad wore a turban. I wore a turban until I was 16. Um, And, you know, I was discriminated against. My family was discriminated against. We felt the sting of prejudice and bigotry uh, growing up often and, uh, and, and brutally. Um, And, you know, when you're young and you're trying to figure out what this means, why I why are you not um, welcomed or thought of as you know being part of the community because you look different? My sort of natural inclination was to begin to look at those people who had spoken out on these issues. And in Atlanta, you know, we're very fortunate to you know been in sort of the epicenter of civil rights history. So you know, I often joke the first names that you learn growing up as a kid in Atlanta is like John Lewis, Dr. King, Abernathy, um, you know, Mary Young, and so it's. It's so it just sort of saturates you. So as I began to sort of like understand who these individuals were and then also become very familiar with organizations like the ACLU and NAACP LDF, um, Thurgood Marshall, um, you know, it was just sort of part of my perspective growing up um, and, you know, very much uh, attracted to, Uh, you know, to be quite honest, like I've had um, fits and starts with my own education and my own professional career. And I never thought that being able to work on these issues and advocate in the position that I'm in was something that I would be able to do. Um, but then once I started getting uh, involved with these issues and, you know, engaging with some organizations and some individuals, um, you know, it was basically every step I took towards them, they took two steps towards me. And it, it was just it was just really great and encouraging. So, you know, the truth is, is um, I think a lot of people can get engaged in this work. Uh, for me, there's some personal reasons about feeling how I was othered. And no matter what it is, whether it's for race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, whether you have a criminal record or not, that idea that somehow you don't belong in our community is the same, that sting that you feel. And I think that's a lot what motivates me is that idea that, you know, as a community, we should be sure to ensure that everyone's included to the maximum and everyone has the ability to be able to maximize their potential, whatever that may be, um, in a non-economic way, from a human sort of uh, growth and development way. But, you know, I also would say, like, anyone that's interested in this work, 
you know, there's plenty of it to do. Um, and it's not as difficult, at least as I thought it would be to get involved with it. Uh, it's it's really impressive just the the uh the logical level-headed uh understanding that you you have of this massive issue and the approach that you have uh bob and singh is executive director for the oregon justice resource center thank you for talking with us and for the work you're doing thank you so much for having me the nonprofit happy hour is made possible by beneficial state bank a certified b corps that holds to what it calls a triple bottom line of social justice, environmental well-being, and economic sustainability. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our executive producer and editor is me, Carly Meisberger. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.